0: Praise be to God that He has seen fit to bring us together again for another day to worship Him here at Foothills Christian Assembly in Edgefield, South Carolina. Let's stand together as we continue forward in the book of Luke. We'll be looking uh, at the verses of focus, verses 39 through 46 in chapter 22. I will read now from verse 21 through verse 54. And please listen carefully, because this is God's holy and infallible word. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now, He who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, behold a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So the Last Supper has ended. That oasis of peace and fellowship that they had enjoyed now fades into the night. As Jesus and His disciples leave Jerusalem for their walk, they cross the brook Kidron and walk over to the Garden of Gethsemane. The bread and the wine finished. The reclining at table together behind them. The hard and encouraging conversation over. With supplies for the road, Jesus and His eleven arrive at their nighttime place, sorrowful and sleepy. Let's walk alongside them and observe this mysterious hour filled with fallen humanity, perfect humanity, and angelic encouragement. The sermon today is entitled, Pray That You May Not Enter Into Temptation. This is what Jesus said to his disciples This is the duty He gave to them during this hour. We'll look at the setting in verse 39. We'll look at this instruction that He gave to them in verse 40. And then we'll see Jesus showing us how to pray. His initial prayer, the answer to that prayer with an angel strengthening Him. And then His agony and even more earnest prayer that follows. We see Him instructing the disciples after this that prayer is better than sleep. In verses 45 and 46. And then as usual. Some questions to know. And to love. And to obey God. So first the setting. Verse 39 says coming out. He went to the Mount of Olives. As he was accustomed. His disciples also followed him. I hope you recall the sermon. When Jesus and his disciples. First entered into Jerusalem. Coming from the east. Coming from the Mount of Olives. You may recall the photograph there of that picture looking across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, from the western slope of the Mount of Olives. This walk from the city in the other direction, leaving the city, back to the western slope of the Mount of Olives would have first been through the city streets at night, then exiting a Jerusalem gate, and then descending down to the brook Kidron, that great graveyard of the common people, that place where so many abominations were burned and ground to dust and thrown into that river down there. They would have crossed through that ancient place of death and abomination and then back up to the Garden of Gethsemane. They ended this long day with a fairly strenuous walk back to their nighttime place. Meanwhile, Judas had time to meet up with the chief priests, the captains of the temple, and the elders form his mob, and then await the right time to spring his trap on Christ our Lord. What were the disciples expecting of this particular evening? Did they expect to find their typical sleep spot and then just drift off, off into slumber as usual? Did they have any idea that something very different would occur This evening they probably did but they were still too tired to pray Judas had exited the last supper after the conversation about betrayal so he's missing Jesus had openly predicted Peter's denial before the next morning and also the flight of all of his disciples in any case his disciples did follow him weary and weak walking with him that last night together back from Jerusalem. Matthew Henry says that when Christ went out, though it was in the night and a long walk, His disciples, 11 of them, for Judas, had given them the slip. 11 of them followed Him. Having continued with Him hitherto in His temptations, they would not leave Him now. But of course, this is the temptation in view. And sadly, they would leave Him. He tells them in verse 40, When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Of course, we are to reject temptation. We are not to enter into it. It seems here that Jesus was preparing his disciples for a very different kind of evening than they had experienced in the prior nights since they arrived in Jerusalem. While this call to prayer could be appropriate for any evening, for any time in someone's life, When we look back over the topics of the Last Supper, especially that dark idea of betrayal and the direct prediction of Peter's denials before morning, and in fact all the disciples fleeing away was a part of his prediction, we really can see this call to prayer from Christ as a preparation for the valley of death that they would face that evening into the next day. So what kind of strength brothers and sisters, did the disciples need in order to stay with Jesus in the moment of his betrayal and arrest? You recall he had graciously commended them. They didn't understand very much, but they knew they needed to stay with Jesus. What would they need in order to continue staying with Jesus in the midst of this great threat? What weakness drew Christ our Lord's attention when he gave them this command? with its reasoned justification, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What was he seeing? Was Christ more concerned about the weakness and the weariness of their bodies or about the emptiness of their souls? Was he more concerned about the health impact of sleeplessness or the spiritual vulnerability of an empty soul? What did Christ most highly prioritize to them and to us? Matthew Henry says that he exhorted his disciples to pray that through, though, the coming, though the approaching trial could not be avoided, yet they might not in it enter into temptation to sin. That when they were in the greatest fright and danger, yet they might not have any inclination to desert Christ. Nor take a step toward it. Pray that you may be kept from sin. This should make you wonder, how does prayer keep me from entering into temptation? How does this work? Remember in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, we read it this morning. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. We're from South Carolina. A nice southern translation would be, indeed, Satan has asked for all y'all. That word there, asked for you, is plural in the Greek. He isn't just asked for Peter. He's asked for all the disciples. Satan wants to destroy every one of them and every follower of Christ. He's had his success with Judas. He's feeling excited about his next attack. You see, the devil has the same goal for every one of these apostles at that moment. The devil wants every one of them despairing like Judas in worldly sorrow, not really repenting, unto self-murder, dangling and dying with guts, spilled out on yet another field of blood for lost strangers, which is where we know Judas ended up. And don't forget that the devil has the same goal for every one of us, for every, every person, every Christian especially. But also remember that Jesus gave those great encouraging words at that time, and he said, but I have prayed for you. Christ is stronger than the devil. So, here in Gethsemane, we now see the disciples' failure beginning to unfold. It's the picture of the failure of many Christians, and it begins in the same way. It starts with choosing sleep over prayer during a time of tribulation. That's what it looked like for them. Jesus, though, in his love and his care, he warns them to pray. He knows the outcome, but in Even in the midst of it, he warns them to pray. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't say, oh, you're a lost cause. He tells them to pray in order to be strengthened against the coming temptation. And in due time, they would learn this lesson. Have you learned this lesson? You see, they don't don't understand it at that time. Uh, Peter, as we saw, was relying on his own strength. He was so confident that he would never turn his back on Jesus. But he didn't understand his need, his emptiness. He didn't understand that he could not fight against his sin and against the devil on his own. So they don't pray, and as we'll see, they fall into sin. They enter into temptation, and they have their dance with sin. They run away from Jesus, Peter, their leader denying that he knew Jesus Christ three times. What about you? Do you pray more or do you sleep more during times of tribulation? Do you ever awaken in the middle of the night hearing the Lord's voice in your head pray that you may not enter into temptation? What do you do in those moments? Bach says, upon arriving at the Mount of Olives, Jesus exhorts the disciples to pray that they not enter into temptation, probably an allusion to the earlier discussion of chapter 22, especially verse 31. Jesus fears that the disciples will deny him a very real danger since Satan wants to sift them like wheat. This is more than a trial. Satan is trying to lead them to defect Prayer will protect them from unfaithfulness and will encourage them to faithfulness and to perseverance. Prayer is important because it expresses a need for God, a desire to depend on Him and to rest in His care. This attitude is what the disciples need in the face of these difficult moments. In fact, in this context, the present imperative Greek word for pray suggests that this is to be a constant attitude for us since Jesus repeats this call to prayer in verse 46 as we'll see. And though they do fail here in the short term, the disciples eventually learn the lesson. We'll see that in Acts chapter 4. Bach finishes by saying, the way to faithfulness in the midst of hostile rejection of Christ is a dependent spirit that communes with God. The key to faithfulness in the midst of hostile rejection of Christ is a dependent spirit that communes with God. Let's remember with this in mind that Jesus had just finished instructing them in the Christian life as a life of total dependence upon God, where we learn that we are empty, that we are nothing, that we are dead apart from Christ. Prayer is how we empty branches abide in the vine. It is the essence of the abiding life. Has the Lord granted you that joy of tasting your own spiritual emptiness, weakness, and neediness? Has the Lord granted this to you? You can understand this academically, but you must go through experiences to believe this about yourself. And it's certainly tribulations that help us learn these things. And we rejoice, do we not? We glory not only in our salvation, as Romans 5 tells us, but we glory also in tribulation. Because tribulation takes us through to perseverance, and perseverance unto character, and character unto hope. And this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God is the end this tribulation for all of us. Certainly that's true for Jesus as well, as we will see. But listen to what Jesus said to them in John chapter 15. You know this is the Last Supper. He had just given them this instruction. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit He prunes If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Do you see how the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ, He describes Himself? As a branch into the Father? Do you see this perfect humanity on display in Jesus Christ? His total dependence upon His Father in His perfect humanity? So, what will the disciples go after? Will they crave spiritual renewal, filled up with abiding in Christ via prayer? Certainly, so There are other things associated with abiding in Christ, but there can be no abiding in Christ if you are not like that bird in the nest with its mouth wide open just waiting for God to fill you. This is the abiding life. And it must be a part of your life. If you are to know this fruitfulness and this power, if you are to avoid temptation... Well, they have this hunger. They will eventually, but not on this night. On this night, they just want sleep. They try, but they still sleep. Reading Luke's gospel like a first time reader. Think about reading this for the first time. Here we are at this moment. You would not know at this moment what they were going to do, would you, on this evening? You would suspect it based on things you've read, but you wouldn't know. The question comes to us day in and day out, doesn't it, as well, for each of us, each moment of our day. Is it spiritual thirst that drives your life? Is that what drives your life? Or do physical needs play a higher focus for you in your life? We're not dualistic, we're not saying one versus the other, but one certainly comes first. So let's look at Jesus' initial prayer in verses 41 and 42. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. Saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has told his disciples this very night with this beautiful metaphor of the vine how they are branches in Him, and He has also implied to them that He is a branch in God His Father, and He now shows them what that looks like. Our precious Lord shows us all we need to know about dependence here in this prayer, about the heart of prayer. The heart of prayer is demonstrated to us by the Lord Jesus Christ here at this moment. The High King of the universe, the kneeling Son of God, here displays his emptiness and his craving in this moment is to be with his Father. To take his perfect human soul before his Father and pour himself out to his God. Every last bit. He knows that he is facing the greatest Tribulation that any human soul could ever experience. He knows he's already smelling the smoke on that hot fire. We've never been through anything like this. We've never been through anything like this. But do you know that when you suffer for Christ's righteousness, you are being granted the fellowship of his suffering? You're entering into a little taste of this? He knows that there is no limit to the all-consuming agony of body and soul that he will soon endure. So, feeling the heat of this coming fire, this fire of God's wrath, yet in trust toward his Father's divine power and sovereignty in that moment, he makes one last humble request. Not my will, but yours be done displaying his perfect humanity, asking his Father to take away this coming cup of wrath and suffering. Calvin quotes, John Calvin quotes Cyril about this. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. For the same reason that the Word of God is God and is naturally life itself, nobody doubts that he had no dread of death. But having been made flesh, He allows the flesh to feel what belongs to it. And therefore, being truly a man, He trembles at death when it is now at the door and says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. But since it cannot be otherwise, let it be not as I will, but as Thou wilt. You see how human nature, even in Christ Himself, has the sufferings and fears which belong to it, but that the Word who is united to it raises it to a fortitude which is worthy of God. So in His divinity, our Lord, He knew the cup of God's wrath would not pass from Him. He knew this. But in His perfect humanity, His agony of being could not but overflow to His heavenly Father, Whom he knew would hear him in compassion and love, whom he knew would be moved by his pouring out of himself to him at that time. He was not yet made sin upon that cross, he was not yet rejected. In Mark 14 36, these special words are spoken, given to us in Scripture. Chronologically, for the first time, these words spoken by Jesus Christ in this time of prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Was there a way that the Father could have taken that cup away at that time? Yes. Probably immediately followed by the utter destruction of all things and every soul cast into eternal damnation. It appears to me those are the only two options. Matthew Henry says, The Syriac word is here retained, Abba. Which Christ used and which signifies Father to intimate what an emphasis our Lord Jesus in his sorrows laid upon it and would have us to lay upon it. It, it is with an eye to this, this event, that St. Paul retains this word, putting it into the mouths of all that have the spirit of adoption. They are taught to cry, Abba Father. Have you ever pondered this before when you've read Romans 8? In Galatians 4, that those intimate words that we are taught to speak to God were first spoken by Christ in this garden and are given to us as tokens of the same love, the same love for us. When you read Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, we really should remember Jesus Christ on His knees, even on His face, the other synoptics tell us, falling on His face to pray. There in the garden of Gethsemane. Pouring out his soul to his heavenly father. Who received every word. And we should think of the Holy Spirit of God. On this Pentecost Sunday 2021. Still being poured out from his throne. For those who come to him like this. Still delighting. To quench our thirsty souls. We should think. We'll read the text, you'll hear it. We should think of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of His Son. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of His Son, giving us His same Spirit of prayer, His same humble dependence upon God, our Abba Father. Have you had seasons of abiding in Christ? Listen to Romans 8, 14 through 18, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So when you hear this, look at Gethsemane. Know that you, every one of us, we're being told in this text, we're going to have moments that are, in, in, in some little way, our Gethsemane. The foreboding for coming suffering, the agony of soul, the suffering that is ours. Abba, Father. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Do you hear this? Christianity is suffering. Until you are glorified. If you expect to have a single day free of suffering where you need to cry out Abba Father you can't make it happen. You have to create a fantasy world. You have to create a false Christianity. If that's what you want. But it is the path to glory. You've got to go through Kidron, through Gethsemane, through even taking up your cross before you can experience the resurrection and the ascension. It is the process He takes all of us through. You try to lay aside your cross and get to a rolled away stone. It's empty, hollow. There's nothing to a life like that. Expect Him to bless you with His sufferings. Verse 18 Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that was the same heart that was in Jesus Christ as he went to the cross. His exaltation is infinitely higher than even his infinite suffering. Amen. Galatians 4, same thing. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So how does the Father answer the prayer of His Son on this night. Verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Brothers and sisters, ponder this with me, please. How does God the Father respond to perfect humanity? To the Lord Jesus Christ's perfect prayer in the midst of his deep agony? How does God respond? Well, the Father does not remove the trial. The Father provides His Son all the necessary heavenly assistance to endure the trial. Jesus, the Son of God, is not left alone in this moment. Not in this moment. Not left to His perfect human strength to endure that which is beyond human strength. Even his perfect human strength could not endure what he was going through. Now that time would come in his life when his humanity would be completely undone, no assistance granted, consumed in the fires of God's unleashed wrath. That's what he would go through. He would have no help. He would be alone. But not yet. For now the father comforts and he strengthens his son. Oh, brothers and sisters, can you see the father's heart here? As he ministers to his dear son, and do you know this love is also yours? Because you're in Jesus, the same fatherly love is always yours. These same ministering spirits who are sent forth to those who are Destined to receive salvation, are being sent forth to you when you fall on your face and pour out your heart to your God. Can you see your father's heart here as he ministers to his beloved son, whom he loves? His only son who will soon endure solitude and isolation. An infinite torment. But the Father's back is not turned now. The Father is not asleep. The angels of heaven slumber not at this moment. Let this be a message to you as well who are in Christ. Your Father's heart is towards you in the same way. You who are in Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. It's a long quote from Matthew Henry worth reading about this section. Matthew Henry talks about three things about this strengthening, about this angelic appearance to Jesus Christ. He says, one, it was an instance of the deep humiliation of our Lord Jesus that he needed the assistance of an angel and that he would admit it. The influence of the divine nature withdrew for the present, and then, as to his human nature, he was for a little while lower than the angels and was capable of receiving help from them. Secondly, when he was not delivered from his sufferings, yet he was strengthened and supported under them. Now listen, and that was equivalent. If God proportioned the shoulders to the burden. We shall have no reason to complain whatever he is pleased to lay upon us. David owns this a sufficient answer to his prayer in the day of trouble that God strengthened him with strength in his soul and so does the son of David. And I would say it is better than equivalent. Because you get something through the trial that he takes you through that you can only get by going. It's better than equivalent to being delivered from the trial that Jesus, our God, sends forth his angels and his spirit to strengthen us in any trial that we face. There is no trial greater than his strength, than his encouragement that he can give to us. Number three. Henry says, the angels ministered to the Lord Jesus in his sufferings. He could have had legions of them to rescue him, says Henry. Nay, this one, this one could have done it. Could have chased and conquered the whole band of men that came to take him. But he made use of his ministration only to strengthen him. And the very visit which this angel made him now in his grief, when his enemies were awake and his friends were asleep, was such a seasonable token of the divine favor as would be a very, very great strengthening to him. Yet this was not all. He probably said something to him to strengthen him. The angel speaking to Jesus. Put him in mind that his sufferings were in order to his father's glory, to his own glory, and to the salvation of those that were given him. Represented to him the joy set before him. The seed he should see with these and the like suggestions he encouraged him encouraged him to go on cheerfully. And what is comforting is also strengthening. Perhaps the angel did something to strengthen Jesus. Maybe wiped away his sweat and tears. Perhaps ministered some cordial to him as after his temptation. Or it may be took him by the arm and helped him off the ground. Or bore him up when he was ready to faint away. And in these services of the angel. The Holy Spirit was putting strength into him. For the word signifies. It pleased the Lord to bruise him indeed. Yet did he plead against him with his great power? No. He put strength into Jesus. Just as he had promised. As we see in those Old Testament verses. So what is the Father's answer? To Jesus' perfect prayer. In the midst of this deep agony. He ministers strength to him. He sends an angel from heaven to appear to him. That is his answer. Well what happens next? What does Jesus do with this strengthening? And being in agony he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Oh brothers and sisters please see this principle. The strengthening that God brings to you is not to lessen your pain, but to make you able to bear more. And in that, to even more fervently pray. In that, even more fervently enter in to God's love. What was the outcome of the angel's strengthening of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus was made able to pray even more earnestly than before. From strength to strength, he was able to enter more fully into the contemplation of his coming suffering. Even more fully into that infinite cup that he would drink. More able than to pour out his soul before his Father in heaven while he still had access. If that infinite suffering is the cup he was pondering, could it be this was an infinite prayer? of somehow, of this full heart, utterly poured out before his Father in heaven. And thus Jesus entered into a mental anguish so deep that we're told his tears became his blood by Luke, the physician. There was a review of the literature done some time ago about this clinical condition. <clears throat> hematidrosis the sweating of blood. In order to verify the accuracy of the commonly used statement, I sweat blood, a survey of the literature in the subject of hematidrosis was made. 76 cases were studied and classified into categories according to the causative factor. Acute Fear. And intense mental contemplation were found to be the most frequent inciting causes. Hematodrosis is an, is an extremely rare clinical phenomenon <clears throat> with only few instances reported to have occurred within the 20th century. So, the Lord God, do we know for sure that it was blood? It says, as blood, as you can see there. His, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But the appearance of the blood there, there's a word thrombus, it looked like clots. It was not the same consistency as tears. So at the very least, it looked like blood flowing off of his face. It probably was. So what would you do with the comfort and strengthening of an angel during a time of great distress? Would you be done and grateful? Or would you press more deeply into the distress that you faced and continue to pour out your heart more to God? Would you use God's strengthening to press more into your Father's presence, to pour out more of your pain and your fear and your shaking and your dependence, your adoration, your worship? Would you use the strengthening to worship Him more? Or would you turn away from the work of prayer to more important things. I mean, Jesus could have stood up after the angel came. That could have been the end of the story. And we wouldn't even have this lesson before us. And who would even think of it? Jesus used the ministry of the angels and of the Holy Spirit in his life to love God more. Matthew Henry says... As his sorrow and trouble grew upon him, he grew more importunate in prayer. Not that there was before any coldness or any indifference in his prayers, but there was now a greater vehemency in them, which was expressed in his voice and his gesture. Note, prayer, though never out of season, is in a special manner seasonable when we are in an agony. And the stronger our agonies are, the more lively and frequent. Our prayers should be. Now it was that Christ offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears and was heard in that he feared. That's from Hebrews 5, which I think was most likely written by Luke. So Jesus rises up. He's done now with his time of prayer, and he goes to the work. He goes to the betrayer. On the way, because we see in the verses following that while he was still speaking, the betrayer is arriving. So verse 45 and 46, when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So here's the contrast. In contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, the disciples Seek their solace and sleep instead of prayer. Yes, they tried to pray. In the other synoptics, the, the flesh is weak. The Spirit is willing. But ultimately, they found their solace in sleep. So they will not be prepared for the coming temptation and they will all abandon Jesus. They could have slept for a million years and not been prepared for that temptation. You see, they will here discover the limitations of their own strength, which cannot be satisfied with enough sleep or the right diet or the perfect exercise plan. This is not just about sleep. It's about materialism and believing that all of our problems can be solved through material approaches or that our problems should first be approached as material problems. And they'll discover this they'll see that the sleep didn't help. They'll discover they were relying upon human strength and physical measures when only heavenly strengthening would do. It doesn't matter how strong you are in the body. It doesn't matter how far you can run. It doesn't matter how many push-ups you can do. It doesn't matter how perfect your diet is. I don't care how free of toxins you might be none of that will help you in your time of temptation. The only thing that can help you is God himself. Are those things bad? Are those things wrong? Might those things actually be the fruit of a healthy spiritual life? Of course, but that's the way it flows. It goes from the inside to the outside. From spiritual to physical. You see, I think we need to look here and see with this simple question, why are you sleeping? Well, now, you know, I think the obvious answer is because I'm tired. Like I'm worn out. We had a long day. We heard some hard things at dinner. We had this long walk back through the Valley of Bones. And I would like to sleep. And, you know, of course, I'm sleepy. This is where we sleep. This is the time of night we go to sleep. But see... We have to stop and hear why he's asking the question. Because they didn't understand at this time. They didn't understand. He points them away from physical needs and problems and toward their deepest need. Spiritual strengthening. Why do you sleep? That's not the need of the hour. What good will sleep do you when Satan comes for you? What good will being rested accomplish when the threatening mob appears with clubs to arrest Jesus? Jesus. Will you be able to cut off every ear because you're better rested? Is that going to help? What good will sleep do you when you are tempted to deny that you even know Jesus Christ? Bach says, Jesus must have awakened His disciples since He now addresses them and asks why they sleep, which may symbolically picture their vulnerability to temptation. This is made clear when Jesus repeats His instructions to pray not to come into temptation. He says it to them again. Except for the addition of this word in order that and this other word, the wording of this command to pray is exactly the same as in in verse 40 that we've already seen. When the moment of truth comes for Jesus, the disciples will not be ready unless they depend on God and prepare to be faithful to Him. Faithfulness requires diligence. They had stayed with Him all this time, but they had not learned how to depend on Him. They had not learned the limitations of their flesh and the strength of the forces they were fighting against. So some questions to know and to love and to obey God. In trials and tribulations, where do you go first? Do you first seek physical comfort and strength? Or do you first prioritize your spiritual needs? The need of your soul for God. Sometimes I'll get hungry towards the end of my morning. And I'll be made aware of my need for God. And I will consider fasting for the day. But then, as I'm finishing up my spicy chicken deluxe with extra pickles and bacon large, thank you very much. Fries. It's kind of funny, but it's not. I, I'm What am I doing? I'm eating to try to find comfort for my soul. And it doesn't work. It just makes my belt too tight. That's really all it does. And it puts me in the grave sooner. This is just an example of this world in which we live where we think that material things can provide for spiritual needs. And, and it may work for a moment. There are other forms of anesthesia that we can give to ourselves in today's world. There are other addictions other than food. God gave us food to enjoy together in worship towards Him and all the good pleasures of life in worship towards Him. But none of those things are designed to bring us into this spiritual need that flows in prayer. None of those things can replace prayer. You know, I hear there's these types of ailments that plants can get where the the nutrients from the soil can't get out into the branch because there's some defect in the soil that keeps the nutrients from being absorbed. This is what it's like for when when we can And grieve the Holy Spirit in our lives. And ultimately, it comes down to loving things more than you love Him and not repenting of it. At the end of Psalm 139, we prayed, If there be any wicked way in me, show me, Lord. So it's not just true about trials and tribulations. Do you have this kind of prayer life in times of peace and stability? Do you abide in Christ when you have peace and plenty, when relationships are in order, when the fellowship of the saints is filled up with peace and joy and your bank account's not threatened, your car hasn't just blown up and you're stuck on the side of the road trying to decide how you're going to get home. Your car's actually working. Do you still have this same hunger for God? Next, do you pour out your soul to God in heaven? Listen, not afraid to ask for relief from current and threatened suffering. You see, that's what Jesus did. Do you pray like that? Not afraid to ask Him for relief from current suffering and threats. He might take it away. He might. And it's okay to ask and it doesn't mean that you're unfaithful that you ask for that. This is a part of pouring out your soul before God. Yet, obviously, in humility... Trusting God's wisdom and trusting God's love as you pray to Him. Next. I mentioned this already, but I have to bring it into the application section. Do you see God strengthening during trials as equivalent to Him actually taking the trial away and yet even superior to having the trial taken away? You're sharing in the fellowship of His suffering You're being granted something you couldn't have otherwise. And He strengthens you to go through it without deserting Him. He strengthens you to go through it with greater faith afterwards. He strengthens you to go through it so that His love is more greatly shed abroad in your heart through it. This will grant you a laughter in the face of all evil. This this will grant you the knowledge. Come what may, I know him more. And none comes to me except from his kind and loving hands. Read about Charles Gordon, the great English general in Sudan in the 1800s, and his great confidence in the face of all evil. He died there abandoned by the British army, but he died honorably. Serving as God all the way to the end. He was a man known to be fearless. And this is what happens in this life. When we're strengthened by Him, He gives us this boldness. That's where this goes to. It goes to boldness and faithfulness in the face of all threats. And we'll see as we get further into the uh, Luke-Acts study Boldness upon boldness upon boldness is what comes to us from the Holy Spirit of God. This is not a personality feature. This is not a personality trait. This isn't because you're an extrovert. Some of the most introverted people that you would ever know who could barely get themselves out of the corner of the room when they stood up in the pulpit or when they walked the streets and the Holy Spirit of God imbued them with power and boldness as they spoke the Word of God So it's not a personality feature. Do you see the father's love for his son in this? Think of the father's heart towards his son in this moment. Knowing that very shortly he would be turning his back on his son. Knowing that very shortly there would be no angels. There would be no Holy Spirit comforting. There would be only terror and doom. Dosed. With infinite. Dosed with eternal. So you see the father's heart for his son. He knew he was about to go through this. And he ministered to him. He strengthened him. Do you know God will do the same for you? Do you understand that? That no matter what is coming your way. You you need fear not. Because he will strengthen you. He will minister to you. Pour your heart out to him. I know people who have claim they've seen angels. Does anybody here know someone that claims that they've seen angels? I mean, you shouldn't find it odd that God might bring an angel to your bedroom. I'm not saying he will. We don't know what he will do. But you shouldn't find it odd if he does. And if you can't see them, you can bet the bank they are here with us because they are sent as ministering spirits to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. And as we cry out to Him, which we have been doing, they come. They surround us. They protect us. They encourage us. They strengthen us along with the Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God coming in truth to us, the love of the saints of God. He strengthens us. And He knows what we need to make our shoulders broad enough for that coming difficulty. Now, of course, you know, it it may be that He actually does to you what He did to the disciples. Are you aware of this? That if you're relying upon yourself like Peter and the disciples, He'll let you, you know, In some analogous way, deny that you know Jesus. Maybe more than three times. If you don't learn this lesson, you may have sad stories to tell, like I have to tell. You probably have your own sad stories to tell. Maybe, children, you could ask your parents to tell some sad stories in their lives about how they were like Peter and the disciples and they ran away from God during hard times. Those would be good stories to tell. To show His faithfulness that He never lets us go. Peter thrice denied Christ, and Jesus Christ thrice restored Him. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Do you expect angels to attend you from your Father's throne? I think we should all expect this. It should be an expectation of your prayers. As an empty vessel, that clay that we're described as, do you think your life can be described as prayer unto prayer, strength unto strength, being delivered from temptation more and more, delivered from sin more and more, and brought into that abiding life of fruitfulness, that abiding life of worship and dependence and communion with God that could mark you? And that will change you. And transform you. Abiding in Christ. That's the the path. to, To have that kind of life in your remaining days. Abiding in Christ. It's essential. This type of prayer. Go to Gethsemane. Watch Jesus learn from him. Over and over again. And pray like this, saints. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we have been so much more like the sleeping disciples. It's true of us, Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, O God. Make us like Jesus Christ praying this way all the days of our lives, communing with You, abiding in Christ, knowing the freedom from sin and the path of righteousness and boldness and glory in Your Spirit, Father, as we joy in You every day of our lives. Oh, grant us this greatest gift, we pray, O God. Your Holy Spirit. We thirst for You, O God. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.